the idea around like Hmong language that there's no word for queer. That was really challenging and we found that that was true across many Asian communities that there is no word for queer that gives us dignity that comes from our own queer Asian or queer Hmong community is words that were labeled onto us that were homophobic or transphobic. Even to this day, we don't necessarily have a word, but we're just living it and we know we exist. Welcome to another episode of the Mini Asian Stories podcast, where we uplift diverse stories and voices from our Asian Minnesotan community. I'm your host, Julia Gay. This season, we're talking with organizers to uncover stories, histories, and lessons from Asian Minnesotan movement history and explore how these historical fights have helped pave the way for the work that we are doing today. We launched season two of this podcast in May in celebration of Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And as we enter Pride Month this June, we felt it was important to take this opportunity to highlight the significant work and contributions of queer Asian organizers in our community. These next two weeks, we'll be taking a look at Shades of Yellow, or Soy for short. Soy was the first ever Hmong LGBTQ nonprofit organization. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, Soy started in 2003 as an informal social and safe space, reaching Hmong and Asian Pacific Islander LGBTQ communities locally and globally. This week, I got the opportunity to chat with Ka Oscar Lee a multidisciplinary artist and cultural producer, and the former interim executive director of Soy. Listen in as Ka reflects on the influential role Soy played in empowering a new generation of queer Asian leaders in our community. My name is Ka Oscar Lee. Uh, I'm based in St. Paul, also uh, known as Imnijaska Otunwe. And I'm an artist and organizer here in the Twin Cities. Can you share a little bit about how you got into queer organizing? Yeah, um, I think at the time I was very much um, already an organizer in arts and culture. Um, That has always been part of my journey. But then it became more so, especially when I got involved with uh, CHAT, Center for Hmong Arts and Talent. And that was right when I was coming out of uh, high school. Uh, going to open mics and I was meeting a lot of queer people who at the time I didn't know were queer and at the time I didn't know I was queer and so over time uh, as I became more and more um, uh, as I came more into my own identity chat had a really strong alliance with an organization called Shades of Yellow and I had always heard about the organization and this really amazing celebration that uh, they did called Soy New Year. It felt like this far away, like community that I never got to quite go to for a couple of years until I was invited to be part of the Soy New Year pageant. And that was my first entry into it as an artist. And from there on, I just became part of this big community and started really advocating for LGBTQ issues. My organizing journey is very much tied in arts and culture and queer identity easily translate in these different spaces. Can you tell me a little bit more about 
what Shades of Yellow was? Shades of Yellow was um, started off as an informal group started by a couple of gay Hmong men. It was really created as a space to build community, uh, especially at a time where Hmong LGBTQ people were greatly invisible and very much like our existence was denied because of multiple factors like being both Hmong and becoming American were things that were clashing. Um, and so that became a safe space for queer Hmong men. The organization started forming shortly after starting their Soy New Year celebration, which was like this beautiful celebration of bringing together the queerness and Hmong culture. Soy got its start in a garage. And I think that's kind of beautiful, right? Like where you start things in like your backyard or your garage in your living room. And that's where a lot of organizing movements begin. And that's that was the same thing for Soy and eventually grew into a nonprofit organization. Um, that was around for about, I think, 13, 14 years. Um, and the anchor or signature community event every year was the Soy New Year that brought these different cultural elements and allowed us to be uh, celebrating ourselves and each other and see each other. Um, again, at that time, there, it was really hard to connect to other LGBTQ people. There's no social media in the way that we have it now. Um, so even like meeting each other was nearly impossible. And that became a space to, to do that and build community and build power together. That's incredible. So this was around 2003, right? That it was founded? Yeah, I think it was around 2003. Um, and then the organization sunset in 2017. And so during that time, we got to accomplish many, many things. And we saw the community dramatically shift uh, in terms of like how we identify ourselves, but also how we were able to create more visibility for Asian Americans and people of color uh, that are queer uh, in the Twin Cities. So a lot of our organizing um, and our building communities very much intertwined with the movement of people of color and people and queer people of color in the Twin Cities and across the country. Um, one thing that's really unique about SOI is that uh, we believe it was the first Hmong LGBTQ organization in the country and even possibly the world. And so that's left such a big impact on all of the work that continues today. In what ways were, was this organizing informed by the larger, you know, queer movement or LGBTQ movement nationally? And also what made it unique and special? A lot of our work is built on support of, of like women, and non-binary folks, uh, people at the margins. We were able to do a lot of this work around uh, racial equity and gender equity and expand that lens. I use the term queer now, but at the time it was like a very new word for uh, some folks from our generation. And if you go a few generations back, it's like a derogatory term that today has been reclaimed. Um, our understanding of queerness and trans and non-binary identity has been has grown so much in the last 10, 15, even like the last five years. That's also, you know, connected to the conversations in um, Black, Indigenous, uh, people of color communities, um, and also across the like national uh, conversations around trans and um, non-binary identities and, and what queer and trans justice looks like. 
the unique thing about SOAR is that we always knew that the mainstream LGBTQ, that's a movement that's predominantly white, that's predominantly led by gay um, cis men, didn't work for us. Just like any communities, when you try to turn yourself into something that you're not, it just doesn't work. And so SOAR was a space to be able to try to embrace the aspects of Hmong culture that we were called to, to be and to exist in, but also understand that our conditions are different than the generations before us. It's really unique in its own way. It's like trying to make sense and trying to create a movement that did, hasn't quite existed in this way before, even in the broader Asian American Pacific Islander like queer movement work. When soy was around, it became more clear that um, Southeast Asians experience is very different than East Asian and South Asian. That really gave us a deeper understanding of like our geopolitical history and why that is different and why we have these different issues around like wealth disparity, you know, like intergenerational trauma and all of that. Even today, like the language we have around like intimate partner violence and what that looks like in community, like all of those things at the time we didn't necessarily have language around, but we knew that there's mechanism and community that exist that help us navigate through that. And sometimes those mechanisms work and sometimes they don't. And so how do we take the best parts of that and create a way forward that works for who we are now and who we are as today? So I'm curious if you could speak a little bit more to why soy was so significant to the community here at that time. And then also I'd love to hear what it meant to you personally to be a part of this organizing work as a young person, a young queer person. Soy is what we believe the first Hmong LGBTQ organization in the world, in this country for sure, and in the world. And that was so huge because at the same time, like being a trailblazing organization, you're dealing with a lot of um, challenges that are unresolved or that our generations before haven't had to address in this way, in this type of urgency. A lot of it is like you're celebrating these beautiful aspects of our culture, but you're also dealing with like very complex issues that maybe we don't have a full clear picture of. Because of that, such an incredible need to be seen and to be visible as Hmong people. That also resonated a lot with um, queer Asian American, queer Asian Minnesotans. There hasn't been another LGBTQ Asian organization in the Twin Cities that's continued this work on a broad level. Uh, but today we can see that that is happening still on a grassroots level, on a community level, but maybe not through a formal entity. And also we can see that um, LGBTQ leaders that are Asian American are existing in more different uh, places throughout mainstream society and not just in silos and that we're embedded in more aspects of community um, that we don't have to exist exclusively in a queer only, Asian only space. To me personally, so I was like this really amazing place where I had never felt like I could hold these different parts of my identity in one place and to be celebrated to like celebrate other people 
and to have this deep connection to people I had never met. And that's where really I learned about the value of like chosen family and how that's continued to grow and be a resource and a tool for moving through community and moving through all of the political attacks that we're experiencing as people of color, as queer people, as folks that are not part of the dominant society. So the visibility in itself was so powerful. And we hear about that all the time in pop culture, how visibility is so important. And at the same time, being able to witness this, I've been able to see how like queer and trans and women folks and femme folks have really laid the groundwork for cultural work in my generation and even the generations before me and how that continues to be carved by younger people and the next of leaders here. A lot of the visibility was about being seen in queer white spaces, but also being seen in Hmong spaces that are typically like heteronormative, patriarchal. It was really existing in these multiple spaces um, and how do we bring ourselves as whole people when, when we're dealing with different issues depending on the space we're stepping in. So being at Pride, Twin Cities Pride was super powerful. Um, that's the work of many groups um, working in these issues around gender and queer justice and racial justice, uh, organizing with other Black, Brown, uh, Native, Indigenous, Latinx uh, communities and organizers um, and trans organizers has been like the way that Sawyer was able to make such a big impact towards the mainstream culture. You know, there was a lot of joy in finding community, and then there was a lot of hardships. About 2% of philanthropic giving goes to LGBTQ causes, and then about 0.01% of that funding goes to uh, Black, Brown, Indigenous, um, queer communities. And so the sustainability of this work became really really challenging and just severely, severely underfunded, even though we can see today that pride is a commercialized holiday season identity, but we know that like in, on the grassroots level, on the local community level, that level of support and funding and uh, structure is not, is not there still, even though we've gone and we've moved um, the needle so far in the last decade. When I think about pride and when I think about the LGBTQ movement, it was it's just so white dominated, as you said, and it has been extremely commercialized. So I'm curious how you and the Asian community here were able to build your own identity of what queerness looks like and how, how you express that and make space for yourself and community that is outside of that white construction of queerness. The Soy New Year is like the prime example of how our community has continued to reinvent um, and redefine culture and celebrating all the parts of who we are. So I began, began as a LGBTQ, like Hmong specific organization, there was such a great need that we became, became a pan-Asian organization. So the Soy New Year also embodied that 
change where it became like a mashup of like Lunar New Year and Kamai New Year and um, Tet and also Mong New Year, like all of the things that we love about celebrating our community at the end of a you know, um, fruitful year, right? And bring all those aspects together and celebrating with like storytelling, performance, visual art, um, all of that. I think art and culture just was this way into creating community in a way that like we just weren't um, celebrated before. And that was such a big important part of the work is like celebrating who we are and continuously to do it um, and to redefine what that means. And it's like a community that is really entrenched in like white queer, like gay man culture. Um, and, and how do we be more inclusive of trans people and non-binary people? How do we deepen our um, understanding of ourselves and our community? Like that had such a big impact on the generations we see today that are able to self-identify very clearly like their gender and their sexual orientation and how they wanna be in relationship with people. These are things that we didn't have, uh, words that we didn't have back then. Like when we think about mental health, just self-empowerment, self-determination, like the ability to, for somebody to go to school or somebody to get a job, like those are things that were very much informed by individual experiences and what was going on on the broader society. But like, it looked very different for Hmong people because you would be at home being a person in your family, but you couldn't really be your full self. And then you'd go out and try to be your full self on community, but society tells you you have to be more white, which we're not white, we're never gonna be white and that's not who we are. And so like, how do you fight back? And also how do you advocate for yourself? How do you celebrate yourself and celebrate like your own roots, right? So soy became a place that really allowed individuals to grow as joyful and as painful as it was. I think that it gave us a space to do that within our own rights. So last week, I got a chance to interview Galilee Ya for the podcast, and she talked about her work uh, founding the Women's Association of Hmong and Lao. And, and she talked a lot about the internal pushback from the Hmong community, especially from Hmong men in that organizing work. And so I'm curious, was there a similar sort of pushback to to soy and the work that you were doing with soy at the time? Definitely. I think that there was both internal within our community and also external. When I say internal, I mean like queer Hmong people and then there's like Hmong community and then there's like mainstream, I guess, white community and also the queer white community. So all these different layers that we're going through as individuals in the Hmong community, a lot of times like we'd have parents who struggled with figuring out how to communicate with their LGBTQ kids. And um, there was a lot of pressure to be like a mediator um, between the two. And also sometimes people like wanted us to convince their kids not to be gay <laughs> or they wanted resources to like, yeah, so that they're to, to change their, their kids back to what they believe their kids are. The idea on like Hmong language that there's no word for queer 
that was really challenging. And we found that that was true across many Asian communities that there is no word for queer that gives us dignity that comes from our own queer Asian or queer Hmong community is words that were labeled onto us that were homophobic or transphobic. Even to this day, we don't necessarily have a word, but we're just living it and we know we exist. And so at that time, it was, there was a lot of pressure to like, don't be so gay, don't be so queer, don't be so out and to keep it to yourself. That still exists today, but it's definitely changed because of the power of social media and how people can express themselves more freely and connect to others like them and find each other more quickly. And then on a political level, there was a lot of pressure to like organize and we're always asked to organize for very white agendas that didn't consider the experiences of people of color and the issues that our communities have been dealing with. And so there was this really great need to do like political advocacy, but the issues always felt a little bit disconnected from what we were experiencing firsthand. As, as Asian Americans, we're also very much exotified. And so there's like this exotifying of a sexualizing of Asian women, as we know, and then that happens for gay Asian men. And then with, as you go down like the different identities, there's just like layers and layers of objectification or de-genderizing people also that just becomes more and more nuanced the more you go and the more you understand these different experiences. The work of other queer black and brown people also are very much aligned and informed the way that we were working and building community in particular is like the work that Roxanne Anderson has been doing with Rare Productions for many, many years. And also with the work of like Tyson, which is a trans youth support network organization and Twin Cities Black Pride. And so a lot of us living at the margins were seeing that we weren't being represented and that our issues weren't being seen and that we weren't even being seen. Like the power to the people stage is this area that like Rare Productions has been curating and organizing and that gave us physical space at the Twin Cities Pride Festival to be seen in 2012. We got recognized for the community award at the Pride Community Award and get to like uh, walk down the parade, which we had started doing a couple of years before that. And when we started marching in the Pride Parade, it was like, it was a big deal, you know? It's like, it's something that our community had never done. And I think because of soy existence, we were finally able to like mobilize our community to like celebrate that part of ourselves at Twin Cities Pride. Yeah, I appreciate how you acknowledge the different levels of what is community and and that you you have the Hmong community and also the dominant white queer community that you're navigating as well. And then there's this like growing community, like queer communities of color in the Twin Cities that I I really have seen this community blossom in the past, you know, five, 10 years even in thinking about like, what kind of legacy do you feel like soy has left? And what else do you hope for the community? And like, what kind of work is going on right now that we can celebrate this month? Soy has really gone through a lot of different transformations throughout its lifespan. And so I was mentioning that it started as a gay manga organization and expanding its uh, work into doing more gender justice and queer justice work uh, that's inclusive of women and trans folks and non-binary people. Essentially what that led to was a change in leadership 
framework from becoming this like very standard nonprofit organization or trying to be a standard nonprofit organization with like your typical executive director structure. Like at one point when we saw our leadership change to include more women, there became more pushback about who could be in leadership. It opened up the door for different ways of leading. So I became a, a group that worked through a collective leadership model that allowed us to decentralize power and to share power, but also it became challenging because we we're trying to figure out the structure we'd never had before. At some point, we realized that there are certain services that we just did not have the capacity to deliver on the way that like longstanding direct service organizations have a capacity to, but we were able to change our local landscape enough so that queer people could become leaders in these mainstream institutions and influence the way programming and services are offered and the way policies are shaped and how opportunities begin to prioritize queer trans people, people of color, so we saw that growth. And then by the end of the organizational life, it became clear that people had more avenues to connect uh, to each other and that our work, the way that we had done it, was coming to fruition in a way. Uh, I don't think we'll ever be done fighting for queer justice and gender justice in this generation, but we're moving along every every generation, every decade, we're moving along, right? We're moving forward. And so at the end of the soy era, something that I'm really proud of is that we decided to redistribute the funds into seed funds for other LGBTQ leaders who wanted to continue the work forward in the way that made sense to them and, and the folks that they engage with. So we created this fund called the uh, Seeding the Future Fund and we were able to redistribute whatever money was left to these individuals, do a big closing celebration and celebrate like sending off and supporting a new or next generation of leaders. Has that fund gone to support any projects that are going on today? A lot of people who benefited from the fund were able to use it in projects that even if they're not present today, their leadership continues. They've continued to do the work in very different avenues in public policy, mental health, arts and culture, um, youth work, education. So like a lot of us have moved forward and moved on, but then we continue to bring these experiences with us. And that's leadership that's grown out of the, that space out of soy, out of the investment that was made in soy, out of the information and the stories and the, the milestones that we achieved together. Today, there isn't like one concrete project necessarily, like the leaders still stand. And that's how we see that we can see that our, our movement has continued to grow. I think it says a lot about a movement when the people who are a part of it are able to continue to do work that's beyond their most marginalized identity and beyond crisis response for the community. That's kind of very aligned with the legacy we were talking about for the women's 
Association of Hmong and Lao, that when you look around at all of the women and Hmong women leaders that are in the community now, and it has a lot to do with that that grassroots organizing that started in you know somebody's living room or or a garage, and it was about first coming together and and like growing the voice as a community. And there comes a point where organizations have lived their purpose for that time or their their capacity for that time. Sometimes you see leadership change that is able to transform the organization into a new era. And sometimes you see that organizations have served their purpose and now people can uh, flourish in other ways. I was talking about this because the pressure of being everything to a community was really high. And we, our, our needs as human people and our connections is so much more complex that any one organization could ever hold. And I think that's the value around that. Like organizations have the power to mobilize people and to bring people together, but it also shouldn't be to the detriment of our community. Like once an organization's finished serving its purpose or has reached a certain potential, like that people can continue on and flourish and build the movement broader and deeper. That's the reward of like doing this labor. It's like seeing that growth. I'm curious if you could share any lessons that you've learned or any ways that you've sustained yourself as an organizer and leader in the community? What sustained me in this movement is really this deep desire to be rooted in identity and to understand um, who I am. And I think that my work in organizing and as a cultural worker, as an artist, a, a lot of that um, is in conversation and is intertwined. Those are not things that I can like take apart. They continue existing as individuals. Like I feel like the more I move into the world, the more things are complex and to embrace their complexity and to not always feel like we have to, to take everything apart. You know, like a petri dish or a science project or something, the social aspect of things being intertwined is actually where where we thrive, right? And like where we can really elevate ourselves and um, other communities is like in that complexity. And so if that's like one of the number one lessons, just like embrace complexity. And we're going further and deeper into, into that. And that's one piece I'm hopeful about. I think that we all have the human right to exist, right? And in the same way, we all have the human right to grow and to learn and that to know that what's informed and shaped our organizing in our early years is, is critical, but also that we get to shift when those frameworks don't work anymore or when those frameworks might have limitations and that there are possibilities beyond what we can actually imagine. The only way we can manifest these possibilities is that we name them and that we describe them or that we like speak them into existence. Because there's so many things that I have experienced in this last, you know, in my, in my organizing years that I never thought would be real. And then today I can see it happening. There's like other Hmong LGBTQ organizations across the country now. And that's super powerful. And these are the leaders that I'm talking about that have grown beyond one organization and continue to expand it 
geographically, but also like in the ways that they're able to serve the communities that they're in. I feel like leadership and growth is key and it's witnessed by, by being able to let time also tell what, what will come of it. So it's like a combination of dreams and, and aspirations with grit and working at the movement and the work, but the time can tell us like how far we've come. And sometimes like we aren't able to see those changes immediately and everything feels so like urgent and like crisis mode, but that if we let ourselves, give ourselves a time to see it grow, then we can really see those incremental or those like big changes in society, in our community and ourselves. Can you share your vision or hope for the future? I'm in this space right now where I'm trying to think about what my future looks like because I never imagined that I'd be where I'd be. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of it will have to deal with us reconciling who we are and really reconnecting to our ancestral roots, where our people come from, and then really looking at the challenges that we have today. I mean, we're doing that already, but I think we're gonna have to keep expanding our imagination and the possibilities around that. The way that we exist doesn't exist on its own. Like we came from somewhere and we are standing on the shoulders of others who have done the work before us when, when the organization was so I, looking back in order to look forward is I think is the way that we're gonna reconcile and address the challenges we have ahead. My hope is to have more queer families, you know, like, <laughs> and like create a revolutionary world with more queer families and broaden our horizon around what it means to create community and like what it means to be interdependent. And that's gonna mean like fighting back our urges to be so Americanized and to be so like single-minded, but also like knowing how to advocate for ourselves and bring our communities along. And again, it's really about like reshaping and reframing the roots and the cultures that we come from in today's context and really like elevating the things that serve us and that really gives us autonomy and uh, really empower us, uh, that really invite more people into the movement, no matter how much or how little experience we feel like we might have. Just more queer, a more queer world is what I would like. And when I say queer, I mean like everything queer. <laughs> queer art queer food, queer families. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, that's great. There's this phrase that's like the future is female, right? And I think that the future is fluid. The future has so many possibilities and it's things that we don't even understand right now. My understanding of queerness is embracing of fluidity and, and the unknown and, and not being so rigid to how things can and should be, but being really open to a very natural cycle and ebb and flow, like you said, of like sometimes there is a time and a place and a need for an organization. And sometimes there's a need to step back for new leadership and really recognizing the the seasons of of movements as well and, and of leadership. Yeah. And there's so many lessons that I also bring from other movements, like the work around disability justice work that's something that's always informed queer justice work. And I'm becoming more and more aware that it's always been a part of it. And so this idea of fluidity and being able to like see what's not there and then 
connecting to the parts that have worked in our upbringings, in our cultural roots, bringing the two together. It's like, it's a weaving of the best parts of our humanity really, right? And like the best ways that we can connect to one another and stay empathetic to the work. Yeah, and, and staying humble in the work too, right? I just love this quote that you have about, I am my grandparents' wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you want to share anything about that. I never knew my grandparents and my ancestors as much or as little as I rebel <laughs> in my own circles. I think that at the end of the day, the fact that there's such um, a persistence to exist, I think that's what our ancestors wanted, you know? Like I think about where Hmong people came from and our persistence to exist and to survive and to, to live amongst other people and to live in cooperation. All of those things, they continue to exist, even if like they look different than what my ancestors would have done. Like I feel like that is what's been passed down to me. And it's just something I just can't deny. <laughs> yeah, the more I think about the work that I'm doing, the more it's like I'm returning to my cultural ways, but reframing in a new light and a new context. I'm curious if you want to share with listeners any projects that you have going on, any resources that you know of. You're so active in the community in so many ways that this is also an opportunity to highlight that work that you've been doing. The themes around the work that I want to do is like more, again, reconnecting to my roots, but also figuring out how, what it means to be more intercultural, bringing back different art forms that allow us to create collective and community narratives. So there's this project that I've been working on called Room for New Worlds, and it includes a mix of like all these different artistic mediums that I've been practicing over the years. It includes like songwriting, includes textile installation, muraling, this idea of like portals and how that takes us into this world and the past world and the next world and different realms and how we exist in like multiplicity <laughs> it's kind of trippy if you think about it but also it's like we already exist in that context every time you step into a room you're existing in like multiple contexts right and so that's been on view for some time but there's an installation that's going to stay on until October at Monktown Marketplace by the food hall another work thing I'm working on is this boutique workshop and using uh, textile boutique printing to create new story cloths and to reconnect people to this ancestral art form. And it's something that I got the chance to learn when I visited in Southeast Asia. Some places I've been, I visited for the first time and was able to gain that knowledge from artisans there. One of my hopes is to build this framework or this, this idea of like collective cultural preservation, but also contextualizing again in today's realities and how that can be a shared experience. I'm not an expert of anything that I do. I think it's always about like, how do we build collective uh, narrative from things that we do together? So that's something that I'm working on and I'll be offering this summer and moving forward. So people get this little boutique kit where they'll have like an instructional art poster made by artist Yervane. And then there's like this video tutorial made by Chuzang Yang that is filmed at Agape Mong Garden. It will have a series of video conversations with artisans from Southeast Asia. 
that's moderated by Gaying Ya from Red Moon Rivers. So a lot of this work exists because there's other artists doing this work with me. My hope is to share that as a way for people to like create stories together while they're making the boutique and reconnecting, like physically reconnecting to our people's cultural and ancestral ways and just growing an appreciation for the labor that our people have harvested over these generations and whether it's through textile or through working the land or maintaining cultural rituals and storytelling. One of the most memorable things that I was able to do while organizing uh, as an artist, cultural worker and, and queer justice organizer was create a Hmong LGBTQ flag. And the story behind that is that Hmong people, we're hill tribe people and we don't necessarily have like a country there's no Hmong land. Hmong land exists in our hearts and mind and spirits. And so when we're organizing for Twin Cities Pride Parade, and at that point we had already become more of a pan-Asian organization with this idea of like having different flags from different Asian communities uh, represented during the Pride Parade. So it was like these queer Asian Olympians <laughs> carrying our flags. And so since Hmong people don't have a flag, it occurred to me that like, you know, maybe I could create one using Hmong textiles that are like very predominant in our clothing. Uh, and so I was able to buy all these different color Hmong textiles or floral plant prints and create this gigantic flag. And the amazing thing about it is like, you know, you didn't, you know, I never realized how much an object would mean to people, but you had like so many people wanted to hold this flag that it just wasn't big enough, even though it was like a 10 foot long flag. That was like one of the, first moments where I realized like, yeah, I think creating culture is really about bringing the different aspects and contexts that I'm in now. And even though this flag would have never existed somewhere else in the world, like it exists here and now because of like where I am and where my community is at and, and our, our realities. And so that was like really exciting to do and just to like, to march and have this huge gigantic mom LGBTQ flag waving around. And then I got to keep transforming this piece over time and create like a butterfly origami folded installation with the flag that really paid tribute to like Hmong trans sisters um, that I had been in community with. So just thinking about like how material can become so meaningful and how it can continue to transform over time. Special thanks to Ka for sharing your stories and beautiful vision for the future with us. You can find photos of the colorful Hmong pride flag Ka designed on our website at calmn.org slash podcast. That's C-A-A-L-M-N dot org slash podcast. Coming up on the Mini Asian Stories podcast season two, we'll be exploring adoptee justice organizing within the Asian Minnesotan community. If you're a member of the Asian adoptee community, we'd love to hear what participating in these movements have meant to you. You can leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash mini Asian stories. The mini Asian stories podcast is co-produced by the coalition of Asian American leaders, the uptake and WFNU Frogtown Community Radio. Special thanks to Katie DeSell, our editor, and to Vin Liu for the theme music. Once again, 
I'm your host, Julia Gay, and this is the Mini Asian Stories podcast. Next week on the Mini Asian Stories podcast. For me, so it was really important. It was like the first time I was with other Hmong queer and trans folks. Coming out was so different for us. For Hmong folks, we, we have like this whole clan system, right? When you come out, you come out not just as yourself, right? But you also come out to your parents and they have to come out to like, you know, their relatives and the clan and all of that too.